This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Live from the Fox News radio studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice. Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show, 1-866-408-7669. We know the uh, Kevin McCarthy's going to be a happy guy at his press conference today. He could end up with 211 Republicans in the House, the smallest uh, majority for any party since 1919. Unbelievable. So that'll be something that's taking place today. The President of the United States, we understand his lawyers will have a press conference at 12. That'll be right after we believe the Georgia recount will be officially announced. Not expected to make up for the 13,000 or just under 13,000 deficit he has to Joe Biden. But as Lindsey Graham, and we should, I should tell you this, Eric, Lindsey Graham was just on Fox and Friends, and he talked about the difference. Uh, the, on average, I think uh, 3% of absentee ballots are tossed. With all these absentee, these write-in ballots, the, the thousands more than the tens of thousands more than ever before, 0. .003 were tossed. You know why? Because one person was in control of the signatures. I got to talk to Bill Crane about that in Georgia. That would have been the difference in the entire state. And get, they better straighten that out now and with these two Georgia Senate races. Uh, Carly Shimkus will be on a little bit later. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. No matter what happens next month, more than a third of the nation that would go along with this is reason to be afraid. America needs to repent for its worship of whiteness. Exactly. My thoughts entirely. Believe it or not, that's Raphael Warnock. A man that will be running to be the next senator from Georgia. And if he's win, the Democrats will rejoice. They did a background check on that guy. That's not the only controversial thing he says. Republicans are going to spell out what really is at stake with these two seats and the ripple effects that would change the country forever. And Warnock's got a lot to a lot of explaining to do. Number two. Even our colleague Brian Kilmeade on Fox and Friends said this morning, it's time for this transition to get going and for the president to cooperate with the incoming Biden administration. I think I agree with Brian Kilmeade. That's news right there. I can't believe we're yeah. quoting Brian Kilmeade. Well, I'm just... Well, and that was quoting wrong. What I said is let the president continue to fight but also let, the, let them cooperate with the Biden team in order to make sure we have the pandemic response to its optimum as well as the intelligence up to its optimum. And you know why? Because we can't afford to drop the ball in either place. And if the president keeps it, it's no problem. No one will say what a waste of taxpayer dollars. Fighting for every vote. Michigan and Georgia, Pennsylvania, now Wisconsin. Under the Trump team microscope as pressure builds to work with Biden. Number one. You can quibble about the guidelines, et cetera, et cetera, but the spirit of what I'm preaching all the time uh, was contradicted, and I got to own that. And so I want to apologize to you. Yeah, but he apologized and then lied about in his apology. Hypocrites and egomaniacs. That's who are running far too many states in this country, and these personality flaws revealing themselves amidst this pandemic where there can't be any. Leading the way, California Governor Gavin Newsom and New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. I'll expose and explain. All right, let's start with 
Gavin Newsom. So Gavin Newsom has the most oppressive lockdown restrictions in the entire country, arguably. Yet his lawmakers flew over to Maui to have a conference about how to bring the economy back because of his lockdown procedures in Maui, Hawaii. How much do you think you get done in one of those conferences in Maui? You can't do that in California with masks on or on Zoom? Next, Governor Newsom, and I'm sure this is the only time we caught him, he's been doing it other times. While sending his kids to private school and in-school training, the rest of the public schools kowtow to the, the teachers' unions, and they are closed. So Gavin Newsom is caught at one of the most expensive restaurants in the country. They say it is like a spaceship for the 1%. On average, a, a fixed meal is $450. He gets caught while telling everyone they can't dine indoors or at all in certain sections. He gets caught an inch away from the person next to him at a dinner or a lunch sponsored by a huge donor and the president of the, of the, uh, the California Medical Association at the same table, while telling us we can't have Thanksgiving, while telling us we shouldn't really have Christmas, while telling us we can't really go to work, that deli's got to be closed, that restaurant can't have indoor dining. That's exactly what he's doing. And when he comes out to apologize, he says, well, I was wrong to do it in the spirit I did it, but it was outdoors. It wasn't outdoors. We see the photos, thanks to Fox 11's reporter uh, over in California in Los Angeles. He is indoors. Cut seven. I made a bad mistake. Instead of sitting down, uh, I should have stood up and walked back, got in my car and drove back uh, to my house. Instead, I chose to sit there with my wife uh, and a number of other couples that were outside the household. You can quibble about the guidelines, et cetera, et cetera, but the spirit of what I'm preaching all the time uh, was contradicted, and I got to own that. And so I want to apologize to you. Listen, you know he's been doing other stuff. If you have pictures, come forward. These people who are ruining lives and businesses on a daily basis and still getting paid, uh, he's got the whole state burning fires. He has all these other restrictions, all these other other energy restrictions, too, that have rolling blackouts, a part of California's lifestyle now. I mean, listen to this. This is Mayor Eric Garcetti, this terrible mayor, back in March. Listen to him talking about who he's going to hunt down. Cut eight. This has really been marvelously embraced by 99.9% of people. We see it in the traffic data. We see it in the cell phone data. But we're going to hunt down that last 0.1% and say, you got to get inside, you got to cut it out, and you got to distance. Okay. Uh, And he was shutting off power to people. Okay. That is the... Mayor of Los Angeles, who's under the impression, being that there is no tax revenue and blaming the police for everything, he's under the impression he's going to get bailed out from the federal government. He better not. You have to earn your way out of this. You have to find a way to live with this pandemic, especially for kids. You shut down schools. I think the percentage is 99.8% chance these kids aren't going to have any effects, let alone lose their lives in school, let alone the deleterious, the, 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 uh, diminishing of their intellect and social interactions that are taking place as you do almost a full year of complete remote learning. And listen to this clown in Washington that actually wanted to be president. This guy wants to shut everything down, including the holidays. Cut nine. It's just too dangerous to gather together indoors where the virus can spread so easily. So this year, when you join us in changing your Thanksgiving and December holiday plans, Please know that you are doing it as an act of love. 
Exactly, especially if it's uh, your uh, parents' last Christmas. It's an act of love not to have it. When you get hit with uh, obstacles in life, kowtow and hide in your basement. That's, after all, how a guy got elected president. You pointed out, Allison, too, what Washington just passed, right? You could get hard-ass drugs now. Heroin. So that's safer. That's safer than having Thanksgiving with your family. Go ahead. Go buy drugs. But it's safer than having Christmas. What you do, if you want, you get a rapid test. If you have somebody that with underlying conditions or advanced age, you go get a rapid test. You make sure you clean. You go in. Listen, you could get hit in a car driving to your parents' house uh, for a holiday, but you still drive in the car. This is not something to destroy your life for a complete year. And I have news for you. It's nobody's fault. It's a pandemic. China's fault. They gave it to 170-plus countries. Every once in a while, there's a country like Japan that seems to, for now, do okay in Korea. But I guarantee you it's coming back. The vaccine's the only thing that's going to save us. And you can sit there and say it's dangerous. Yeah, okay. Make your own decision. I don't want to be told, in my house, only to have 10 people. Here's Daryl Issa. Now he's a congressman again in Florida. Um, Cut 11. The fact is that risk is not being looked at properly in the workplace, in the home, or in fact for our communities. And that's where leaders have got to back off and use science and statistics and levels of capability of their healthcare systems. And Mm -hmm. when in doubt, err on the side of liberty. But that's not happening in California. They're not erring on the side of liberty. They're erring on the side of control. I can go over the next... So that's what they're doing. They're just destroying everyone's lives. Tucker last night had video of someone being arrested paddleboarding alone in the ocean. Okay? Uh, that's how crazy this is. That is not the problem. Uh, by the way, I read this in the New York Times today, and this is what drives me nuts. First, they were telling us no masks. Masks give you a false sense of security. You don't have to wear a mask. Uh, it's going to be no, not be a big problem. They went to shut down for just three weeks. Lie, 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 and lie. Okay? Now we find out. I'm reading the front page of the New York Times. Why are we wiping down anything? This does not really transfer through countertops or your food. It really is through the air, aerosol through the air. It's when we share air. All those people have been wiping down all their groceries. You're doing it for no reason. The spraying down at airports and at schools doesn't matter. You can touch whatever you want. You almost It's almost no chance you're going to get it. I know. Does that drive you nuts? And these are the experts. one 408 7669 I don't want to take up too much time. I'll play this with Carly. But uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo is so clueless. He writes a book on how to, how to survive a pandemic while 30,000-plus people died, 11 of which died in nursing homes on his decree. And now he's screaming at reporters who are telling him something that's a fact, that New York City decided to shut down schools. He's yelling at them, telling them they're not right. But I don't want to take too much time away from Bill Crane. I want you to get the latest on the recount in Georgia. So when we come back, we talk to Bill. Then Carly Shimkus comes in, and we end the hour with some more of your phone calls, one 408 Are you still having Thanksgiving? If you don't, I respect it. But I want you to know you should be able to make that choice. Back in a moment. It's Brian Kilmeade. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it... <clears throat> A real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. 
That's shopify.com slash system. As many of you know from your own life experiences, a life in so-called blue-collar work is something to be proud of. It is very rewarding to work that has impact on your friends, your neighbors, and your family's lives. Great successes can be had in the blue-collar career. There's no degree requirement for achieving comfort, peace, and freedom. While schools cut shop classes and funnel students into colleges, there are plenty of options for hard workers who are ready to take advantage of open positions. Many young people today assume that college is the only way to achieve success in life. That is not true. Let me introduce you to Ken Rusk. Ken spent his younger years digging ditches and working in construction. He never went to college. Instead, he made goals, planned, and worked hard for 30 years. Now Ken is a successful entrepreneur with multiple businesses and revenue streams. In his national best-selling book, Blue Collar Cash, Ken shares his insights from over 30 years of working in blue-collar trades as an entrepreneur, mentor, and life coach. Now he's created a guide made specifically for you and your unique situation. This guide will give you or someone you love the tools you need to start designing the life of their dreams. You can achieve your dreams regardless of your educational background or your past. Go to KenRusk.com path to learn more. That's KenRusk.com path. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. So in Ferguson, police power showing up in a kind of gangster and thug mentality. You know, you know how you, you can wear all kinds of colors and be a thug. You can sometimes wear the colors of the state and behave like a thug. And that is Reverend Warnock, who wants to be the next senator from Georgia in a battle with Kerry, uh, uh, with uh, Kelly um, Stauffer, uh, Leffler, I should say. And he's got a lot of his comments in the past are coming back to haunt him, including his view in the military. You can't worship God and be in the military. That's interesting. Apologize for your whiteness. That's an interesting take on George, on Donald Trump's election. So we'll see how this goes as he's starting to get some national scrutiny. Let's bring in Bill Crane, senior communication strategist, chief political analyst for WSB Radio, just one of his many jobs. Bill, welcome back. Good to be here, Brian. Thanks for the invitation. So how much of these comments from the pulpit going to hurt Warnock? Well, the ads are everywhere, but so are his ads against Kelly Loeffler on insider trading. I mean, facts are never a huge issue when we're talking about political ads. But the comments were made by uh, Reverend Warnock from the pulpit in defense of Reverend Wright, and then some of the comments later that were critical during some of the racial justice protests and movement during the summer of certain aspects of law enforcement, bad police officers in particular, overusing their authority or committing acts of police brutality. I, I think, honestly, both nominees are playing respectively to their bases. Neither campaign in Georgia has played to the middle, and, and I think that's kind of where the election may be decided. Anyone in Georgia who's registered 6.7 million people can vote. We had 5 million in the general election. I would expect 2.5 to 3 million in this runoff. If you turn out the people or the same number you got in the general election, you will win, and that's basically what both campaigns are trying to do now. I'm not sure. I think it's strategically smart to beat up on a pastor for being a pastor in a state that has a significant African-American population. I think in some respects you just juice that turnout more. In a way. But I heard that if, if you registered for November 3rd, can you – or didn't register – do you have to have registered November 3rd to vote on January 5th? You have to be registered by December the 7th. Um, there obviously will be some new people moving into Georgia. The state averages about 100,000 new residents a year. There's a bunch of hullabaloo being raised about 
Andrew Yang, a Democratic presidential candidate, and others moving from California and other places to vote in this election. I don't think among several million votes that would be statistically relevant. You do have to have identification, so it's not like you could just set up shop at a Motel 6 and call yourself a Georgian. And Mr. Yang has expressed that neither he nor his wife intend to vote. They're just coming here as activists. How many votes do you how, – how disturbed or surprised were you, Bill, that – the president uh, was able. The president's team was able to find uncounted votes by the thousands. Well, uh, we, I think at this point we're four or five counties that, in aggregate, have about three thousand votes that the audit uncovered. That is what the audit is supposed to do. Most of the ballots that were uncovered did benefit the president. The gap is closed. The vice president also got votes, as did the libertarian candidate. The gap is closed somewhat, and it's now down around 12,700 votes between Joe Biden, who is ahead in Georgia, and Donald Trump. Certification by the Secretary of State's office takes place tomorrow. The governor then certifies the uh, 16 electors, assuming that Joe Biden is, is certified as the winner, and then the Electoral College meets on December the 14th. I believe the president's campaign by Tuesday will request a second recount pointing to these discrepancies. They're also still concerned about the signatures on the outside of the absentee ballot. In fact, envelope. I want you to hear what Lindsey Graham just said about this on, on, uh, on Fox and Friends. He basically said on the average, Lindsey Graham was, came out, and I'll just paraphrase, on the average, he said 3% of those uh, absentee ballots are thrown out because the signatures don't match. This was uh, basically 0.03%, and it turns out that that comes out statistically to 39,000 ballots. Why is it that there was so, such less scrutiny on the signatures this time? Well, partly because there were so many more of them. There were 1.3 million absentee ballots cast. We had 1 million in the June primary, and Prior to those two elections, we would typically have 1% to 3% of votes cast via absentee. Right. A majority of those were overseas military. They did add some precautions. I would suggest some additional legislative remedies, but they did tie it to the driver's license database. If you applied online through the Secretary of State's web portal, you had access and that the county could pull up your DL signature. Every time you vote in Georgia at the precinct, you have to sign a, a what's called a voter's affidavit. They would match those signatures. But sheer volume would tell you they probably did not spend as much time scrutinizing signatures on those exterior envelopes of 1.3 million as they would have done with 10 or 30. So you also point out, too, that in the June primary, there were 24,000 fewer Republican primary voters uh, at, all the, uh, at all in the November 3rd. So there's 24,000 fewer in the general? Correct. We do not have party registration in Georgia. Originally, there was going to be a March presidential preference primary only for the Democratic Party. They moved that because of COVID-19 to June and put it on top of the general primary election. But you could tell, looking backwards at voter registration records, who voted in which primary, Republican or Democratic. So there were 24,000 households in Georgia who pulled a Republican ballot when there wasn't a presidential preference primary. So these were the Senate and other races down ticket. More then pulled those same homes that didn't vote in November, those same households. So that's twice the margin, and it's most of that's in suburban metro Atlanta, that the president is now behind. So I'm pointing that out to you and share that with your viewers to say if the president had done more to attract middle, you know, middle income, middle class, suburban, particularly women, maybe we wouldn't be here right now. True. Uh, but, but who showed up? Well, he, I mean, we had a healthy turnout on both sides of the aisle. We don't get to know the secret ballot who voted for what. And the president, you know, if he loses Georgia, it's a narrow loss. He cleaned up and won outside of metro Atlanta with the exception of about five or six counties. He lost heavily in DeKalb, Cobb, Fulton, 
Gwinnett, the, the largest population centers in the state, by margins of two and three to one, and that's why he is where he is now. I don't believe it's because absentee ballot signatures weren't scrutinized enough. Yeah, I just look at Warnock, back to how we started, Raphael Warnock. I think people who are moderate might have a problem with a lot of these statements about whiteness. And Oh, I uh, agree with you. I agree with you. Yeah, so I think that that's going to, you know, that will help the urban turnout. But for the moderates that could go either way, you, you're making an extreme pick uh, if you do choose that. Uh, well, but you also have an inexperienced opponent. I think defunding the police, as we've discussed before, is a winning issue for the GOP, and I don't understand why they don't play that drum harder. Bill Crane, thanks so much. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. First of all, let's try not to be obnoxious and offensive in your tone. If by the state's numbers you hit 3%, the schools close. How? What are you talking about? You're now going to override. We did it already. That's the law, an orange zone and a red zone. Follow the facts. I'm still confused. Well, then you're confused. I'm confused. And I then I'll tell you what, Jimmy. Still, parents are still confused as well. The schools no, in they're not confused. Tomorrow. You're confused. No, I think but parents read the are law. confused as well. Read the law. And that is uh, Governor Cuomo showing terrible leadership and no composure. He usually gets the biggest uh, softball questions you can imagine in New York. People like Robert De Niro and uh, his brother just telling him what a great job he's doing and him walking around like he's some mob boss. But yesterday he got some questions because out of nowhere they decided to close New York City schools as if we haven't learned that the damage done to these kids and the the unlikeliness of them getting it or experiencing negative uh, ramifications from it besides a cold or a mild flu are remote. And instead, they close the schools anyway. And he's telling people they're not closing the schools, and they did. And he goes off on these two reporters. One is Jesse, uh, excuse me, the first one is Jimmy Balkind. He's with the Wall Street Journal. And then it was followed up by Jesse McKinley. She's from the New York Times. And he just wanted to know, that was a good question. Why don't you answer the question? Carly Shimkus is here, just fresh off doing Fox and Friends first and all around the channel. Carly, you're anchoring this. You were running this all morning from 4 o'clock in the morning on. Yeah. Is this outrageous The Tony's taking with the press? Yeah. Uh, you know, the, to me, this is an example of when a lawmaker forgets that they are working for the people. People have questions about what's going on. Uh, I think he was confused because I don't. I don't even. I don't even think he knew that De Blasio had shut schools down yet. So I mean, they had their wires crossed. But the tone he took with that reporter, and you know, I, I understand President Trump takes his own specific set of tones with reporters as well. But uh, you know, Governor Cuomo is the person that slams that sort of behavior, um, and he has also been repeatedly praised for his response to the coronavirus pandemic and, you know, even wrote a a book about it as the pandemic is still going on. Uh, So this was uh, really surprising behavior uh, coming from him. So he uh, evidently, Mayor de Blasio was six hours late for or five hours late for his press conference to announce what schools were happening with schools. Can you imagine being a parent and you got a job? Yeah, waiting. And you're picking your kid up at 3 o'clock and, you go, and all of a sudden you hear at 3.30, 
the school's closed for the foreseeable future. Yeah. You got to work. Yeah, I know. And in, in, in that press conference, a reporter asked him, you know, we've been waiting a while. Do you have an apology for for parents and, and for people who are waiting for this announcement? And he uh, did not apologize. He just skirted past that. But, you know, the positivity rate in, in New York City is, is 3%. That is very low. And the reason we locked down to begin with was to make sure that hospitals weren't overwhelmed. Great point. And, you know, I asked uh, 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 New York City uh, uh, Assemblyman on Fox and Friends first day, Joe Borelli, are there any hospitals at risk of being overwhelmed in the city right now? The answer is no. Yeah, I heard that this morning. Uh, So here is Governor Cuomo. Now, just going back and then we'll go to Basio again. But uh, on the 16th, which I think is Monday, he's on MSNBC, and they talked about closing the schools, being that in all 50 states, the numbers are going up. Cut 19. If the schools hit the 3 percent, what I'm suggesting to the parents and the teachers and the mayor is let's take a second calculus, which is the infection rate in the school. We know New York City is at 3. Let's add an element of the infection rate in the school. And if the school is below a certain threshold, let that school reopen. Uh, But the parents and the teachers have to agree. There is no fiat here. Uh, If the parents don't agree, they don't send their child, school doesn't matter. If the teachers don't agree, they don't come into the school, you don't have a classroom. Uh, So that's the discussion that's going on right now. Teachers don't want to teach. That's what people are saying, or the union leaders don't want to let the teachers teach, yeah. which is out- unbelievable because they hate they hate being Zoom teachers. Yeah, absolutely. Especially if you're a grammar school teacher, you can't keep a kid's attention. No, it's all you know. I, I have a I have a lot of friends with uh, kids who are very very young kindergarten. Oh, do listen to and, this. Would you say, Allison? Um, the positivity rate in the New York City schools is. Point one nine percent. Point one nine percent. Yeah, and you know you hear those things, and then you got to sympathize for these parents who are. And this isn't just happening in in New York City, but it just happened in in the nation's largest school district, which is why it's uh, so important to talk about. Uh, but you know, what are these parents are are going to do? A lot of them also small business owners that have to worry about what they're going to do with their business, and these these kids that are getting just. A lackluster education because you can't keep a, a child's attention over Zoom. And I just don't understand the logic or reasoning to shut down public schools with a 3% positivity rate overall and then an even lower positivity rate in schools when it has been proven that schools are not a, a spreader of this virus. one uh, Bill de Blasio yesterday on Closing Schools. I know we're a national show, but it's important for you to know these are the people in charge. And this is how inept they are. And if your school teachers union doesn't go along with it, you better go call a press conference and call them out. And there's plenty of teachers that would teach. And you go past them and you let them know your kids are the priority. Cut 20. You're leaving the bars and the restaurants open where it's been proven that those are super spreader places as opposed to the schools. Yeah, Gail, the governor made clear yesterday uh, that New York State is going to very soon be applying what they call an orange zone standard to New York City, and that will be closing uh, indoor dining and a number of other things. So those restrictions are coming very soon. It's quite clear. So now he's going to shut down what's left of the bars and restaurants. Think about this. You, you live in the city, right? Yes. Uh, don't give the exact address. I, 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 I made this, that mistake. It's on the tip of my tongue. Thank yeah. you for stopping me. I'm walking by and seeing those little booths that they made in the street. 
And I'm going, it's 20, it's like 34 degrees. Nobody's there. Oh, yeah. But the doors are open. There's a waiter there standing behind the glass hoping someone will sit outdoors. That's how desperate they are to get money. And guess what? He goes, that's coming. They all think it's coming. Then the gyms come again, and people can't work out. They can't eat out. They can't go to school, so that means they can't go to work. Oh, no. Some people can do that, though, but it's them, the people that are making the rules. The number of examples of uh, – politicians breaking their own coronavirus rules, if it wasn't so serious, would be laughable. Speaking of gyms, you have de Blasio. Remember when this started in March? He was at the gym a few hours before he shut gyms down. Nancy Pelosi getting her hair done and then blaming the salon while she's sitting there maskless inside, breaking the rules of San Francisco. Uh, Lori Lightfoot screaming into a megaphone, surrounded by Biden supporters after the election while telling people in Chicago that they can't go visit their family for Thanksgiving. So it's clear that there are two sets of rules here, one for the ruling class, one for the rest of us. And, you know, you, you want everybody to be safe. I am most certainly a rule follower. I'm not a rule breaker, but it does feel like public sentiment about these rules is changing, even in liberal cities, uh, because it's it's just become too much at this point. And uh, lawmakers are going to have a really, really tough time enforcing these rules when they can't even follow their own lockdown. Get ready for me starting a lot of conversations like this and you too. Uh, Trump was right. New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof says hours after it was announced New York City schools would be shutting down amid the nationwide spikes in coronavirus. Uh, quote, when Trump was right, many Democrats were uh, and many Democrats were wrong. He says some things are true, even though Trump said them. Trump has been demanding for months that schools reopen. And on that, he seems to have been largely correct. Yet America is shutting down. New York City announced uh, they're closing schools in the nation's largest district, even has allowed businesses like restaurants and bars to operate. What are the priorities? Because kids come home, they're more susceptible. Kids come home, they start Stop learning. They say for high school kids, uh, one million kids will drop out of school because of the pandemic, because they're going to lose touch, let alone the socialization that happens with it. And I did not know this. In New York City, one in eight families has some type of addiction going on in that school, which means it's solace and a refuge for so many of those kids. Yeah. It's their chance to get a good lunch, be with other people, and get out of that chaos. Yeah. Who wrote that? Was that the New York Times that wrote that? New York Trump? Times, Nicholas Christoph was yeah. the column, uh, was the editorial, but it was the column front page of the New York Times. Yeah. Well, I have a feeling that was only written because the election has already happened, Absolutely. but he does, he does make a good it. point. Uh, yeah. And the rules are getting even more uh, uh, stringent in terms of it used to be, you know, you can't do this when you leave your home. Now they're going so far as telling people what to do inside their own homes. You have to wear a mask in Philly in your own house if you're with other people uh, of different households. You can't have 10 people over 10 people in New York at your Thanksgiving celebration. Uh and there's a constitutional issue there. Can you really do that to people? Can you tell people what to do inside their own homes, their own kingdoms? I don't think so. Not in this country. Not with freedom of assembly. Right. Uh, the freedom city, of speech. The city and mayor of, uh, that we have in New York, the one in Los Angeles, the governors, uh, the mayor of, uh, of, uh, of Chicago. I just hope people are seeing this and forgetting about party and just look at common sense. They have none. They want to go party. You know what Mayor Lightfoot said when asked? Well, it was a special moment. We wanted to note it about Joe Biden winning. Well, it was special to you. If you told everyone to stay inside and you go and party, you don't see a problem with that. That's the same person that told us, why are you getting a haircut when no one else does? Well, I have a public persona to keep up. That's more important. I do it for the people of Chicago. I get my hair done for the people of Chicago. Yeah, no, you're right. Uh, Also, uh, I'm sure that weddings... And funerals 
in Philly. You can't have a funeral if it involves more than one household starting Friday. I think that those are very special moments for those people as well. Uh, they're never getting back. Uh, I really have a, I have a major problem with this. And then I'm going to play you a clip a little bit later, maybe when we get back. Governor Cuomo knows where all the blame lies with us. He blames the people. We're not worthy of him. one 408 I paid the fee that Carly Shimkus to stick around through the break. We will make small talk or she'll pretend she has an emergency and check her messages. <laughs> but I promise she'll be back on Let's the Let's do small talk. <laughs> okay, I'm good. Okay. Back in a moment. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. I remember Vince Vaughn went to say hello to President Trump. I remember that uh, Ellen DeGeneres wanted to, uh, had a conversation with uh, President Bush, and they had to explain themselves. I mean, that's crazy. That's in your business. These are, these are titans of the business. No, I, I, I hear you. You know, and, and look, it, it's like, it's like uh, this, this immediacy of this culture with Twitter and everything else and comments and stuff. It was about what you tweeted about. Yes. Okay, so it's like, hey, what was the tweet? And then all of a sudden it became like, well, if an issue came out and you didn't tweet support for it, it was your non-tweet that got you in trouble. I heard. Like, <laughs> where are we? <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> and you're like, what? And people are coming out going, you know, yeah, that's right. I'm, I, I'm going to stand up and I want everyone to know I'm, I, I'm against rape. And you're like, well, no shit. <laughs> What did you have to come out and say that, or you know, what did you have to defend? I hear <laughs> Matthew McConaughey. Yesterday, uh, we taped it yesterday. All three parts of our interview with his book Green Lights, which is really about his life, and supposed to inspire yours, will be online right now on BrianKillMeShow dot com. Okay, uh, but we can see that a little bit later. With me still is Carly Shimkus. Carly, the whole cancel culture. We thought right. that would be a topic that you could, would embrace because it's been unbelievable how many lives have been ruined, how many apologies have been forced. Yeah, you know, the whole thing about cancel culture, which is interesting, is that the people who do it, um, they always say that they're trying to create change. It's not about change. It's about silencing people and punishing them. And I think this is really a big problem within the Democratic Party. Um, How many times have you heard about a liberal politician, like you were talking about with Matthew McConaughey, apologizing for something that they did or said wrong because they can't even live up to their own rules. It's sort of like what's going on with the coronavirus restrictions. You know, there, there's just such a, a narrow focus on the way that uh, you are supposed to live your life if you want to be woke and accepted in Hollywood that you're going to trip up from time to time because it's impossible to follow these rules. All right, let me ask them. Be honest. Were you ever in the in crowd? Were you the crowd that people wanted to hang out with? Was that you in, in high school? In high school? Uh, I, I don't know how to answer. I've always tried to be nice. <laughs> no, I could always picture you nice, but you yeah. were kind of in the in crowd, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, maybe. All I never right. really had a problem with bullying well, or anything. There, there's a people, for the most part, the Hollywood's like the in crowd, yeah. right? They're in. If people want to be there, they don't want to be bothered. They're running around from place to place. They don't want private security. And they turn around and they start condemning people. They better not do this. Look at these horrible people in Washington. Look at these horrible people on Fox. Look at these horrible pe- ingrates in the Midwest, Absolutely. those ignorant people. Okay, fine. Yeah. 
Now they did that, and now all of a sudden it's coming back in their face, and they can't control the tsunami. Al Franken's probably the first one who was so con- uh, condemning, and then it blew up in his face yeah. because of his past. Jimmy Kimmel sat there, and then they realized he did the man show, and he did these horrible sexually uh, put-down-ish skits were were fun so then, not now. Yeah, and it's it really is a, a, a sort of an empowerment tool for people um, who are trying to cancel someone. Imagine how you feel. I mean, how big of a head must you have to think that you could cancel somebody's life like it doesn't exist anymore? And I am... We're sitting judgment. Yeah, yeah I, I don't want to make this about myself, but um, I am thankful that I am not uh, popular enough to ever be uh, in the public eye so that people care enough to cancel me. But I have gotten criticism on social media before. Everybody has. And uh, if you get 20 tweets that say the same thing, you feel like the whole world is against you. And that is really what it's all about. Right. I have not had any criticism, so I do not can't yeah. relate to this yeah. at all. Uh, would you like me to start right now? <laughs> I can't even think of one thing I want to criticize you on, though. Yes, but I, other people have. But thank you, Carl. You're too nice. So this is the comment. So in a time of a pandemic, when let's get together, listen to what Governor Cuomo went out of his way to do. And that is blame all of us for the problem we might be having and the restrictions we might be experiencing. If you socially distanced and you wore a mask and you were smart, none of this would be a problem. It's all self-imposed. It's all self-imposed. If you didn't eat the cheesecake, you wouldn't have a weight problem. Wow. That's very interesting. Um, Does he know that this is a, it's called a pandemic for a reason. It's a very, very, a disease that's very easily caught and is no one's fault? Through a mask that they told us in the beginning not to wear. They told us not to touch countertops. Now they say countertops aren't an issue. Now they say it's aerosol. Now they say in between it gives a false sense of security. I cannot tell you how wrong that statement is. He should also talk to his brother. That's what I, yeah, I was about to say that. Yeah. His brother was walking around on yeah. film without a mask, smoking a cigar at a crowded restaurant, yeah. got got in a fight with somebody while he had the virus yeah. outdoors. I do miss the beginning. I don't know how much time we have. Should I shut yeah. up? No, okay. go ahead. Yeah. Uh, I, I do miss the—I um, I, kind of miss that bipartisan moment where he had with President Trump where they were actually seeing eye to eye and complimenting each other. That's very nice. That was very nice a thing to see. Um, and then things deteriorated. And I really just I still can't get over the fact that he wrote a book while the pandemic is still going on. Promoting it. Yeah, I know. I mean, that may be I don't I mean, I guess if I was had a conspiratorial streak in me, I would say, you know, maybe the restrictions are so strong in New York because he doesn't want to have to add another chapter to that book and say that he messed it up. If you kill the patient and say he was safe, it doesn't work. You killed the patient. You're in New York. I work here. You've killed the patient. It's not getting any better. No one's working here. There are no businesses open. The restaurants are allowed 25% capacity. They can't even get the customers in. And you are bragging about it? Yeah. You got a big head. Uh, Real quick, I was talking to a restaurant owner who was infuriated over the summer saying that he is struggling to get by, scraping to get by as there were protests marching down the street being celebrated. Perhaps smashing his windows unless he put up some plywood. Uh, Carly, sorry to end on a down note, but you're always upbeat. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye, Brian. With Fox News Podcasts Plus, you can enjoy all your favorite Fox News Podcasts without commercials. Subscribe now at foxnewspodcasts.com. 
Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Oh, I know what I should be talking about. George Clooney is what I should be talking about. Uh, welcome, everybody, to the Brian Kilmeade Show. The very last moments heard from New York City, heard around the country and around the world. Uh, this hour, we're going to be talking to Matthew McConaughey. He's got a brand new book out. It's number one. It's even done better than Chris Wallace's book, who's going to be on shortly. Uh, he's got a, he has a very interesting life, and I think people can benefit from reading that book, which is why it's number one, not just about a, uh, a very successful celebrity. It's so much more than that. Uh, and uh, we're continuing to follow a couple of things. At 1130, Kevin McCarthy's going to have his press conference. He's got to feel great. As a minority uh, leader in the House, he was supposed to lose 20 seats. Instead, he's gained about 20. He's going to be up about 210 before all this is done. And Nancy Pelosi basically said, I'm ready to sail into the sunset. I wish it was. Uh, I wish he had be gone already. She's a terrible job, a horrible leader. Um, and uh, it's, she's bad for the country. So uh, before we get started, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. No matter what happens next month, more than a third of the nation that would go along with this is reason to be afraid. America needs to repent for its worship of whiteness. Exactly. My words, I say that all the time. Uh, Georgia Senate seats. Republicans begin to spell out what's really at stake should they lose these seats, and the ripple effects could change the country forever as the guy you just heard, uh, Raphael Warnock, begins to have his past exposed, and it should scare us all. Number two. Even our colleague Brian Kilmeade on Fox & Friends said this morning, it's time for this transition to get going and for the president to cooperate with the incoming Biden administration. I think I agree with Brian Kilmeade. That's news right there. I can't believe we're yeah. quoting Brian well, Kilmeade. I'm just- yeah, I mean, I can't believe we're quoting Brian Kilmeade. As well, so inaccurately, I just tweeted out the clarification. Uh, that was Juan Williams last night fighting for every vote. Michigan, Georgia, Pennsylvania, and now Wisconsin under the Trump team microscope. They're going to have a presser at noon today, Eastern, as pressure builds to work with the Biden team. Number one. You can quibble about the guidelines, et cetera, et cetera, but the spirit of what I'm preaching all the time uh, was contradicted, and I got to own that. And so I want to apologize to you. Uh, Yeah, apologize and lie during it. Hypocrites and egomaniacs. That's who's running far too many states in this country, and these personality flaws revealing themselves amidst the pandemic. Leading the way, California Governor Gavin Newsom and New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. I'll expose, but I cannot explain. But then there's this. Now it is time to clear the airwaves for the esteemed host of Fox News Sunday. You are to refer to me only as the big guy going forward. <laughs> the battleground big guy. The chairman of the choosing. I want to be called the big guy like I want to be called oligarch. And the oligarch of the, um, big guys? I love that. Chris Wallace. Chris, welcome back. No, you, it's big guy. Welcome back. <laughs> big guy. Welcome back. That's right. <laughs> hey, uh, good to be back. Chris, talk about Gavin Newsom. If you're out there and you own a dry cleaner or a restaurant and you see these pictures of him sitting in one of the most elite restaurants in the nation without a mask, inches away from a donor, two people away from the CEO of the California Medical Association, what are you thinking today? Now, it's horrible. I mean, you and I disagree, I think, about some of these safety precautions and uh, masks and, and the degree to which there should be mandates for that. 
But you and I are in total agreement that if you're going to call for everybody else to do it, you, you, you know, it's the old cliche. you got to practice what you preach. And to sit there and say, well, the little people, you got to do all this. But I can go, as you say, to one of the uh, restaurants, incidentally, that I've never been to. Have you ever been to French Laundry? No, I would keep driving thinking I don't want the French to do my laundry. Little did I know, this is like an elite a restaurant no, in a, the it's, Napa it's Valley. Like one of the most famous restaurants in America. It's up in Napa Valley. I have literally driven past it. Uh, I've never been inside. Uh, but, you know, and I can understand the governor being <laughs> tempted because it's supposed to be delicious. But it's outrageous that he would sit there and say for the state, you all got to, you know, you got to uh, you can't have indoor things with 10 people. You got to have masks. He's inside with it. more than 10 people without masks. At a big dinner, you know, everybody cheek by jowl. Uh, and over the course of this apparently lavish meal, they got cheekier and jowlier. Um, so, you know, it's, it's uh, if you look up hypocrisy in a, the, the dictionary this week, there's a picture of Gavin Newsom. Okay, I, I just want you to hear the apology for those people who haven't heard it. Listen, cut seven. I made a bad mistake. Instead of sitting down, uh, I should have stood up and walked back, got in my car and drove back uh, to my house. Instead, I chose to sit there with my wife uh, and a number of other couples that were outside the household. You can quibble about the guidelines, et cetera, et cetera, but the spirit of what I'm preaching all the time uh, was contradicted, and I got to own that. And so I want to apologize to you. While lying, he said it was outside. It's not outside. Yeah, this place was inside. He stayed there for hours. And are you going to tell me it was Fox 11 that found these pictures, got these pictures and put it forward out in L.A.? You're going to tell me it's the only time? Guarantee you, people listening, we got we have affiliates in California. You got pictures of Gavin Newsom uh, just putting this whole uh, throwing all the guidelines that they uh, you have to live under in the street. Let's put it forward. And he's not you know, the only one. You're the Woodward and Bernstein of Thank this you. era. I mean, that's how they would have cracked. Maybe it is how they cracked Watergate. You know, they put it out there. They said, readers of The Washington Post, if you've got some information about Watergate, send it to me. You really want me to go out there and just follow them? I'm busy. I can't. You know, but uh, how about a little shoe leather? How about a little (laughs) gumshoe? How about, I don't know. You're right, but it would be easier if someone just sent me the pictures. It was a gumshoe. Right. But by the way, just it would be easier if you just sent me pictures. I don't want to go out there. I'm busy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> you you and Bob Woodward. There you go. Okay. Here, Andrew yes, Cuomo yesterday, yes. and you could appreciate this, because he knew the schools were closing in New York City. He does a press conference after, by the way, it was five hours late. All these poor parents who thought they could work today found out the schools were closed for the foreseeable future, even though the percentage is 1.9%, not 3%, and you can go to school safely, especially grammar school. Listen to him get on these reporters. Cut 18. First of all, Let's try not to be obnoxious and offensive in your tone. If by the state's numbers you hit 3%, the schools close. How, what are you talking about? You're now going to override. We did it already. That's the law, an orange zone and a red zone. Follow the facts. Well, then you're confused. I'm confused. And then I'll tell you what, Jimmy. Still, parents are still confused as well. The schools no, are not confused. Tomorrow. You're confused. No, I think but parents read the are law. confused as well. Read the law. 
And he goes on, and the New York, that was the Wall Street Journal reporter. The New York Times reporter came up right after that and said, basically, he's saying the schools aren't closed. They were closed because he doesn't talk to the mayor. Everyone pays the price. And now he's telling a bunch of fourth graders to go home and pretend to learn. This is, we already showed that it's better to go to school. We always like to point to Europe. The Europeans are going to school. You know, it's interesting about Cuomo because you live in New York. You, uh, you know, you follow him more closely than I do. And, and when he was first holding these briefings back in April and May, and Fox News would play him all the I liked time. him. I thought, yes, I thought he did pretty well. And I was kind of like, what's the problem? Because New Yorkers, I mean, I know he's been elected governor, what, three times or something. But there's this feeling that he's a jerk. And it was yesterday. Well, no, I mean, I've gotten it before yesterday. But yesterday was a full case of jerkdom. And, uh, you know, I mean, he was so funny him saying the other guy's obnoxious. He couldn't have more been more obnoxious, more condescending and to to add to it more wrong in terms of, you know, mocking somebody saying the schools were closing. In fact, they were closing. Um, You know, he's he's earned his reputation the old fashioned way. Uh, It gets worse. And this is this is you talk about blame. He have a speech he gave the other day where you have to if you make a mistake in life, you should apologize. So because the numbers are surging in New York, he knows exactly who to blame. If you socially distanced and you wore a mask and you were smart, none of this would be a problem. It's all self-imposed. It's all self-imposed. If you didn't eat the cheesecake, you wouldn't have a weight problem. Do you believe this clown? <laughs> well, you know, actually, I was thinking to myself uh, as I'm listening to that, and I know Chris Cuomo a little bit, and I knew Mario Cuomo a little bit. I thought, God, that must have been a tough household to live in. I mean, I'm sure ah. they loved each other, and I'm sure they were a good family uh, and all of that. But, gosh, that's <laughs> there were a lot of opinions in that family, I'm sure. And, and I want to clarify something else with you. Uh, that well, I did not know Juan Williams talked about me last night until you guys put it in the open. But this is what I said oh, yeah, yesterday. I didn't put it in the open. Oh, you Real didn't? People put it in the open. Oh. Again, they're undercutting you. Oh, yeah. I thought you did it, Chris. So here, I here's... had nothing to do with it. It was Frank. Could I? Uh, Frank Bruno. Yes. <laughs> and Allison. I'm, I'm gonna, I, would, I would sanction him if you didn't like him so much. But, um, but I'm, I'm going to leave the sanctions on Cuba and put them on Frank. That was, that's, my new, that's my new credo. So, what, did you, what, did you, what did you actually say? Yeah, I'll tell you exactly what I said. What I said is the president of the United States has every right to fight. But in the meantime, don't concede. But in the meantime, just have the meetings. Have, set up, the, set up the, the meetings on the COVID staff and national security. Give him the check to open up his offices. I'm talking about uh, Joe Biden. Even if it turns out that the recounts work through the president's direction, it ends up getting four more years. No one's going to be mad at him. And he's the former vice president. She's getting national briefings anyway. What harm can it do to let him set up a copy machine? Well, you, basically, you said what Juan Williams said you said. No, he says I told the president to concede. <laughs> yeah, he did. Play it, play it. You should play it back. He said Brian says the president should concede. I don't think he should concede. You really don't think he should concede? No. Come on. Come on. You think he should? I, th- I think there – look, I, I certainly agree with you. He has the right to pursue this in court. But there has been nothing so far. We're, how many weeks are we out from, from uh, election day? That was the third. Today's what, the 
Uh, I, I can't count that high. 16, 17, 18, 19. I think it's the 19th. You know, at a certain point, I mean, it's been over, it's two and a half weeks. There's right. no, wait, where's the fraud? Well, a couple of things. You've already saw 5,000, 6,000 votes cast aside in a state that was decided by 11 or 13. Now it's down to 12,000? He, he, he gained 1,000 votes. Look, am I shocked at that? Yes. But is it going to change the results of the election in Georgia? And the recount is now over? And even if he lost Georgia? I, I don't know. Look, here's the only point I guess I would make. Okay. And I, and, and, and I do feel this. You, you, on the one hand, he has every right to do this. And I'm not saying he should concede, but I'm not sure he should be out there at, or today at anything. noon when Rudy Giuliani and they're having this, this massive you know, statements about fraud and stuff. I mean, it does. there is a price to undercutting the results of the election. And I know everybody's going to say, well, look what the Democrats did in 2016. A lot of that was wrong. But that doesn't make it any writer for for the president to be undercutting the legitimacy of what I I think is going to be President-elect Trump. I know, you know, let the everybody when you want to email how much you hate me, send it to Brian Kilmeade so he can deal with it. Oh, I get him. They email me anyway. Uh, I get that pretty regularly. We're all getting a lot of emails these days. But but I'm beyond your family. What do you mean? Emails hating you from beyond your immediate family? Yes, it just started. Yeah, <laughs> usually after Thanksgiving, the hate emails come in. Uh, it's it's a very interesting time, Chris. We were watching you, a whole you, country get you, locked you down. You bet it is uh, unbelievable. Do you have any idea who you have on Sunday? Uh, well, we know one person we're going to have on because regardless of whether you think it's being handled or not handled, uh, I mean this COVID situation, and I agree with you. I want everybody out there that says, thinks they hate me. I agree. Gavin Newsom is, is, is you know, that was bad. I mean, there's no question about it, and totally hypocritical. So remember that. Uh, we're going to have uh, the head of the Center for Health Security at Johns Hopkins. I'm not having a Trump doctor. I'm not having a Biden doctor. I'm having a doctor doctor, pure science. What the hell is going on and how long is it going to go on and how bad is it and what should people do for Thanksgiving? Oh. We hope to have somebody from the from the, the Biden right. transition. Uh, and, you know, we'll have the very latest on the election and all of that. But right now, absolutely. Number gotcha. one story this week, the spread of COVID, the COVID. How do we protect ourselves? All right. By the way, I loved your feature with Alice Trebek and it came up on the Howard Stern show about who should replace him. Let's listen. See, I'm going to propose another name, and this man has it in his blood. Who? Chris Wallace. Oh, no. Nope. (laughs) No, 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 no. No. He would take it. He's only working Sundays, as far as I can tell. I'll bet you 200 (laughs) on that. (laughs) And his father was a game show host. That's true. That's what I was about to say. You know, got known in 60 Minutes Life, in his 60 Minutes Life. So I say he's got it in his blood. Chris? Was that Robin Quivers? Yep. I would love it. I'm t- saying right now, and I'm saying to my bosses at Fox, if, and, and, my, and more importantly, the bosses at Jeopardy, you will offer me the host of Jeopardy. I will, I, I will say uh, uh, Shakespeare for 2000. <laughs> Let me ask something. Would you, would you leave Fox News Sunday for Jeopardy? Come on. You don't think that's the greatest gig in the world? I, I don't know. I think Wheel of Fortune's a little bit better. It's a little bit more no, genial, a little bit you more really everyman. Um, I mean, Jeopardy, you know, and, and it is let, great. let me just say, I am an undefeated Jeopardy champion. I think we need to get this going as a, as right. a real campaign. As a real, I think you need to promote this 
And 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 you, look, I got a lot of of your listeners who want me away from Fox anyway. Here's the perfect answer: give me Jeopardy. Chris Wallace, thank you so much. We're going to start the campaign. It starts now. <laughs> See you Sunday. One of the most popular talk show hosts in the country. Because darn it, people like him. Why do I go on the Brian Kilmeade show? Because I mean, compared to Rachel Maddow, you're terrific. <laughs> you're with Brian Kilmeade. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. The progressives have very good ideas, and the American people agree with the progressive ideas. If you look at the this election, Progressive incumbents in swing districts overwhelmingly won re-election. So these progressive people, you know, that are calling them progressive ideas or socialist ideas, those ideas won convincing victories across the country. America has spoken. Those are the views that uh, America supports, not this sort of conservative uh, right-wing agenda. That's just not true. And, of course, that was the view. Who could not be more wrong? Uh, It's the socialist thing that was a surprise big victory, the whole defund the police, the surprise themes that truly gave Republicans what almost turned out to be a majority in the House and defied all expectations with wins in the Senate. And now they're on the doorstep of holding on to it, despite the odds being way against them. Look what happened in Iowa. Look what happened over in Maine. Uh, We know uh, we expected Alabama but in the end, they could only be one vote different, 52, if they get both center seats. And they really should in Georgia. But as the president of the United States is battling it out in Georgia in particular, Lindsey Graham's point was great when he said the problem with Georgia is that on the most part, 3 percent of absentee ballots were tossed out in past election. This time it was point zero zero three, And the main reason is because of the standards were lax during this election because Stacey Abrams had everyone so intimidated as she didn't even admit that she lost the governor's race. And she gets lauded and the president gets criticized. Matthew McConaughey next. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. The name of the book is Green Lights. There's only one man that could have wrote it, and he wrote it all himself. Uh, it's Matthew McConaughey, Academy Award-winning actor. Uh, the book is number one in the New York Times. And you know what? Not only because it's a great book, because this guy doesn't mind talking about it and letting people know what's in it. So many times people have a great book, and they go, well, if it doesn't sell, it doesn't sell. Matthew, you weren't going to leave anything to chance. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, good to be here, Brian. No, you know, I mean, I put a lot of time into the book. Uh, I've got the opportunity to get out there and hustle it and sell it and get it in front of people. Um, I believe in the book, and so, yeah, you're damn right. I, I'm not going to be outworked on certain things like this. In a way, you value privacy, but after you're, you're done writing this book, did you hesitate on letting it out? Because these were your innermost thoughts through 30 years of journals, only for your eyes. What made you think it was okay for others to see what you were thinking? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I did never hesitate. I didn't especially... You know, I mean, look, I had a 
I had to check with a couple of people that are in some of the stories and run those stories by them. Yeah. So, hey, I told the truth. Are you cool with that? And everyone goes, yeah, and completely trusted me. And so, you know, I've handed the book out, and everyone who's in it that has read it, there's been nobody that's come forward and go, oh, I don't like you. You betrayed me. Everyone goes, yeah, you did tell the truth, but I, you showed the – even in some of the ugly moments in the book, even like, you know, my mother's like – yeah, you showed some of the ugly truths, but that was all true, and uh, you showed it with humanity. So, How have you been dealing with it, uh, the fact that people do know so much about you? You talk about people walking yeah. up to you thinking they know you. How have you dealt with the fact that when you're done with this interview, the Howard Stern interview, the Joe Rogan podcast, people even know more about you? Are you okay with that? Well, actually, what I am okay with, here, here's why it's an asset. <laughs> now, look, it, it's out there. You know, so you're going to come up. Um, there's not going to be as big of a gap between who you think I am and who I really am, because I just let you know. Uh, if you if you checked out the book, you're not thinking uh, you know, that I'm some that I'm somebody other than I am. Uh, it's obvious who I am, and I'm very clear about it. And so this book is the most. This book is a, is the truest permanent extension of me that I've ever put out. So I'm not wearing another hat in this book. I'm not playing another part in this book. I'm not glossed up in a magazine in certain another picture in this book with that somebody else wrote about me. No, this is a direct line from McConaughey out there. And if you like it and it translates, which it seems to be doing for a lot of people, you it's it, it's a true mirror of me. You know, I always say this: we got different. We got we got all kinds of mirrors in our life. Sometimes we got those mirrors that they have on Beverly Hills that make you look really nice and skinny. Really nice and thin, and sometimes you get those mirrors at the, at the circus that make you look way overweight. <laughs> well, this is a true mirror. This book is a true mirror. It is. It is who I am. So you know your uh, your thoughts on the fly as you grew up just blow me away because they're as if somebody they're as if you're thinking out loud, but they're written by a, an excellent writer. As it. Did right. you look back and say, wow, that's pretty insightful? And it led a lot of your chapters. In case people don't know, you open up this book, and you see the tearaways of your journal in that. And one of it says, life is not a popularity contest. Be brave. Take the hill. But first, answer the question, what is my hill? What is your yeah. hill, Matthew, to be famous, to be successful, to make money? Right. Well, it, it's look, it's, you know— Another way of saying that is asking ourselves continually, what do we value? Right. And that answer will change over time. You know, you're a single man. You're, what you value in life is different than if you get married and have children. You know, so it, it changes in through life. But my, mine, I've had different pursuits. I've had different things I've gone after. I will say this. For the most part, I didn't ever jeopardize who I essentially am and who, who, who I essentially am as – an, an integral man, a man who's trying to be his best, a man who's, who's you know, wanting to take care of myself, uh, my relationships that I have in my life, my relationship with God, my, 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 uh, uh, you could, I've always been somebody to shake your hand looking down and say, we're going to do this. You can pretty much, you don't have to look over your shoulder again. We'll, we'll get it done. Um, so, you know, now I've got children. That's it. Fatherhood, husbandry, keeping my family unit together and, and, and helping grow and shepherd some hopefully autonomous, conscientious, confident young men and women out of our household, a.k.a. our children. That's what I mostly value because I think that's the greatest legacy actually a, a, a man or a parent can leave. Um, so what are the things I'm after now? Um, you know, looking at leadership roles. 
um, that may or may not be on the screen. They may be actually live in, in, in life, working on this minister of culture role that I've, that I've been uh, created and then finding some real need for it. And that's my goals now. Because people saw how active you were now in the middle of this uh, COVID-19 crisis, and they see you taking action in it, and they thought, hey, has Matthew McConaughey got a political career in his future? Yeah, um, I've been asked that a lot recently. Um, and I think a lot of people that are reading the book are bringing that up as well. I don't, I don't have any plans for that. Look, I got questions about politics. I, 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 you know, I bet you do too. What, what, politics is at a, at a real crossroads where for whatever side uh, and how, wherever you were on this year's uh, election or the election four years ago, politics has sort of some explaining to do. What is it? <laughs> I think a lot of people are going, it's a time to redefine, to declare what it is that, you, that, that politics is. What is the purpose of politics? Um, that's a real question that I think that politicians and politics needs to answer. What is its purpose? Um, and I, I, I want to know that answer, you know, and understand that answer uh, first before I would, I, I would really sort of be interested in hopping into politics. And which brings me to is if you make a mistake in my business, maybe in your, in your business, definitely this whole cancel culture thing. It doesn't have to be just people on the left. I know Jimmy Kimmel got uh, got some issues over right. the summer. I know that Tillman Fertitta, who owns just about every restaurant in the country, uh, he has two rockets rumored to want to leave his team because evidently he supported Trump. Uh, there's Harvard University said uh, a reportedly has a petition. If you work for Trump, you cannot apply to the university. I mean, this whole cancel culture, does it concern <laughs> you at all, being that the powerful people are yeah, in the middle of sure. it? Well, sure it does. And look, I'm just going to without going into specifics and you just listed some and you know, there's, there's something, there's some cancellations that you go, yep, you know what? That's a three strikes you're out, uh, move. But as far as canceling by via affiliations, conversation, condemnations without conversations. Um, look, if, and then let's just, let me just go back to, let me, here's the way I look at it on more, a, even a more personal level, forget your politics and stuff. We've started this trend a long time ago in America where if, 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 if I'm behind you at the red light and it turns green and I bump into your bumper, or let's say you bump into my bumper behind me, right, on the road. Yep. The, 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 the American thought has become, oh, well, wait a minute. If, 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 I feel, if my vertebrae hurt, I can sue this guy yep. and make a bunch of money. So I'm going to get out, and you see it. I'm going to maybe have a hand over, and you go, oh, I bumped your bumper. I'm sorry. Here's my insurance. I'll fix it. And I go, well, now, wait a minute. It may be more than the bumper, and I'm going to have to go see my doctor. And so you got people chasing lawsuits and things like looking for angles to screw people over in ways instead of going, hey, man, sorry. And you're like, dude, I was looking out the window, not paying attention. Sorry, I bumped in your bumper. And I go, cool. Got your insurance. Do the deal. We shake hands and move on. Mistake. Shake on, shake on it. Move on. Forgive it. Also, if someone screws up, which everyone screws up, all right, if someone is going to seek real retribution, yes. they have to seek it on – have to, you have to see that they mean it. Not this, oh, yeah, I'm sorry, and I'm a repeat offender of whatever it is that you want to cancel me for. But if they seek real retribution, we got to have room for forgiveness. we got to have room for, okay, yep, once, shame on you, twice, shame on me. So I understand that, and right now – we are invalidating people, illegitimizing people, persona non gratifying people because of 
an affiliation they may have or a picture that they may have of them shaking a doggone hand with somebody that we don't agree with politically or denominationally. Well, that's going – a lot of that is going too far. You know, someone in my business said something um, uh, a couple of months ago. I forget who it was. I wish I remembered her name because it was really smart. She was like – "What?" The, she was, I think her quote was like, what do you folks think you're doing trying to play God? <laughs> exactly. And who are these people? Was a really, was a really, well, look, everyone's extre- Look, everyone's tethered at the internet. Everyone's so damn reactionary. We got, we, we, we had an illiberal left way off the, way off the rails on the left. We got a far, far right. That's off the rails on the right. I believe you know, in this time of in unemployment, COVID, and it's not new to this year, but it sure bubbled over a lot this year and exposed itself this year. People, we're looking for an identity and looking for purpose, and they ran to some extremes to just feel like they have some footing. Mm-hmm. And I think they're having some buyer's remorse on both sides. So, oh, wait a minute, who I'm sitting at the table with, this this tribe I ran to, I don't really know if this is who I want to be hanging out with. I thought it was, but maybe it's not. So hopefully it's going to relax. They're going to you know sort of relax their hands on that proverbial far, far left and far, far right, right. poles they're holding on to. And you can come back and at least look across and go, hey, you know what? I've been over here not even really knowing what I believe in, but I've been screaming at you going, all I know is I don't believe what you believe in. And that's kind of a short-term way of looking at things. So, again, I've been saying this a little bit when I say, hey, I'll meet you in the middle. I think that is more of a challenge, more of a dare, dare, more of an aggressively centric challenge to us as Americans right now than it's ever been. Yeah, I have an opinion. My opinion on this is going to be light like sports. You know in sports there's a trade, and do you want that number one pick yeah. or do you want that player that's 31 years old and at the peak of his career? And It's fun to debate at the sports bar. Well, can you imagine doing an immigration deal? Imagine doing a budget where mm-hmm. both sides compromise. And you sit there and we talk about the deal instead of the standoff right. and the next election. Right. And that's where I think we're going to get to at some point. And Mark Penn just did this study. He's the esteemed pollster used to work with the Clintons. He said it turns out from this past election – most Americans are moderate. So that should give Matthew McConaughey a reason to sleep maybe nine and uh, ten and a half hours uh, tonight and make you feel a little <laughs> bit better. I haven't done that in a while. I'd love to. I haven't done that in a while. You know, the thing is, when we hear that word moderate, right, when you hear, you hear me say something like, hey, meet you in the middle, people go, oh, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's the, the gray area of compromise. Right. You know, uh, and, 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 and no, that's false. It's not, it's not always. It can actually be where actually the truth all the all the truth lies. Um, I, I would say this: conference. You got to have confrontation to have unity. All right, but let me ask you this: if you do not validate your opponent's opinion or stance, if you do not even consider that legitimate, if you consider if you think opposite than me, then you don't exist. You are evil. Is that really confrontation? I would say it's not. Confrontation, at least. You have to come to the table going, I recognize my opponent. Therefore, we can come together by recognizing that we have a difference. But if you don't even recognize that you have an opponent, if you make that other 50% and look at our, look at our election, you, you're calling that other 50% illegitimizing them, thinking that they are nothing but foolish or evil or persona non grata, well, that's not real confrontation. I hear you. That's just denial. That's denial. And then everything shuts down. So, well, uh, Matthew, the other thing I just thought of, too, I remember Vince Vaughn went to say hello to President Trump. I remember that uh, Ellen DeGeneres wanted to 
had a conversation with uh, President Bush, and they had to explain themselves. I mean, that's crazy. That's in your yeah. business. These are, these are titans of the business. No, I, I hear you. You know, and, and look, it, it's like it's like uh, you know this this immediacy of this culture with Twitter and everything else and comments and stuff. And so remember how it used to be. I remember, and, and I wasn't on it. I wasn't even on it. But I would notice that it was like it was about what you tweeted about. Okay, yes. so it's like, hey, what was the tweet? And then all of a sudden, it became like, well, if an issue came out. And you didn't tweet support for it. It was your non-tweet that got you in trouble. I heard. Like, <laughs> where, where? <laughs> it's crazy. And you're like, what? And people are coming out going, you know, yeah, that's right. I'm, I, I'm going to stand up and I want everyone to know I'm, I, I'm against rape. And you're like, well, no shit. <laughs> what, did you have to come out and say that? Or you, what did you have to defend? I There's hear. certain obvious things. You're just like, hey. We got to have those ex- expectations of ourselves without having to come out and someone say, "Well, if you didn't say it, <laughs> then you must believe the opposite." And I was going, "Well, hang on, that's that's a that turns into anarchy. That doesn't make any sense." I just love talking to that guy. You just heard part one. When we come back, part two with Matthew McConaughey and his book Green Lights. You're with Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Matthew McConaughey with us. His book, Green Lights, number one of the country. And it's as much as you, you enjoy hearing about him, it really can motivate you to be a better person, not necessarily be a great actor, although we have something in common. We both look great without shirts on, but that's for another time, Matt, and I'll have to prove that to you in a different movie. I'm studying for a different role at this hour. But, uh, Matthew, I was just in the Third Street Promenade two weeks ago. It's all boarded up. And then I'm reading your, the part of your book when you talk about it. So here you are in your Third Street Promenade. You said there's 400 people there. 396 don't know you exist. A couple of girls thought you were hot, and maybe a guy recognized you. And then two weeks later, you do this movie, Time to Kill, and it all changed. Here's a piece of that movie. Now comes the hanging. They tie a noose. The hanging branch isn't strong enough. It snaps and she falls. So they pick her up, throw her in the back of the truck, drive out to Foggy Creek Bridge, pitch her over the edge. She drops some 30 feet. Can you see her? Her raped, beaten, broken body, soaked in their urine, soaked in their semen, soaked in her blood, left to die. I want you to picture that little girl. Now imagine she's white. The defense restaurant. Great moment, obviously, from just a guy who, who bought a ticket but for you, what did it do? Well, you know, that final summation time to kill. It, it, it was my first major lead role. I understood enough about storytelling to know that that scene has to work for the whole movie to work. If that scene doesn't work, if the performance in that scene by the actor playing Jake Regantz, which was me. If it doesn't work, that movie doesn't work. So it's kind of what I call a hinge scene. Every every film will have a hinge scene, one or two. And that was the hinge scene, the big the big summation in the Time to Kill. 
that what you see, what you just heard, was take one. Um, that's where I learned a, a valuable lesson about being so prepared for a situation that I can come to it extremely relaxed. And that's where I also learned that everything after take one is acting. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the, I remember walking in there and the director going, okay, we're going to shoot the wide shots here um, and let Matthew warm up into this scene and then we'll shoot the jury, and then this afternoon we'll do the close-ups when he's nice and warm. And I didn't even look him in the eye. I just kind of walked over to him and, and, and elbowed him in the side, and he goes, mm-hmm. And I didn't even look at him, and I just put two fingers up and pointed at my eyes and, and pointed at my chest. And he goes, okay, no, we're not. We are going straight to the close-up of Matthew. Here we go, close-up first. So, boom, that shot right there, that scene was the t- that was take one. Um, that's all we needed. We were done. So I hope you enjoyed that. We have the whole interview on BrianKilmeadeShow.com. And uh, I know he's done a lot of interviews, but each one he takes like his first. For a guy to be that famous, that successful, and sell a book like there is no tomorrow in a very sincere way, for a guy that does this, it's very, very rare. And he deserves to be number one. Also, we didn't get to a lot of stuff that's in the book that you will love, including how he solved his hair loss problem. Uh, He should get a sponsorship out of it. You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach, it's Brian Kilmeade. Unbelievable. This is Brian Kilmeade Show. I will come to you from New York City, heard around the country, heard around the world. Uh, We're going to be speaking to John Cribb. Uh, John is uh, an excellent author. He's going to talk about Gettysburg and what the, how significant it is. It's the anniversary of the speech. Also, the fact that Joe Biden was there talking about a divided America. We're not shooting each other, but, man, we are divided. And one of the things I just heard was just to confirm, and I'll, you'll hear it again, but the New York City mayor is not done precipitously uh, closing without any notice all the schools in New York City. And I said that because it's the largest school in the country. I know we're heard around the country school district in the country because it hit 0.3%, but in schools it's below 2%. They also are about to close gyms and restaurants. So goodbye, 70% of all business in New York because of a virus, which if people under 50, there's a 99.5% chance you're not going to die from it. Where hospitals aren't close to overrun. We have an, a serious issue, but this is not the right action for it. So I'll, I'll keep you up to date on what's happening. Now, the parents are, are rallying in New York City. This might be happening in a city by you. Maybe it's happening in California, too. And they're just demanding to open up the schools. And they're saying they're, they're kids, and they want to open up the schools. You know why? Because it's about the teachers. And that's not right. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. No matter what happens next month, more than a third of the nation that would go along with this is reason to be afraid. America needs to repent for its worship of whiteness. My words exactly. No, just kidding. That is Raphael Warnock. He wants to be the next senator from Georgia. The Georgia Senate seat. Republicans begin to spell out what's really at stake should they lose these seats. And the ripple effects which could change the country forever. And Raphael Warnock, the reverend, begins to have his past exposed and it should scare us all. 
Number two. Even our colleague Brian Kilmeade on Fox & Friends said this morning, it's time for this transition to get going and for the president to cooperate with the incoming Biden administration. I think I agree with Brian Kilmeade. That's news right there. I can't believe we're yeah. quoting Brian Kilmeade. Well, I'm just... Okay, number one, I didn't say that. I said that the transition team should meet, but the president should keep fighting, not President-elect Biden. I said the, the president should worry about national security and the coronavirus, and if worse comes to worse, he wins. Nobody's going to be upset that Joe Biden was briefed or had an office to make copies. That was my point. Juan Williams, as usual, takes it out of context. Uh, we're going to talk about Michigan, Georgia, and Pennsylvania, now Wisconsin. The Trump team is going to uh, have a press conference at noon, at which time the president has just, re- has just tweeted out where he's going to spell his way forward, including asking for a recount on a recount in Georgia and paying $3 million for one in Wisconsin. Number one. You can quibble about the guidelines, et cetera, et cetera, but the spirit of what I'm preaching all the time uh, was contradicted, and I got to own that. And so I want to apologize to you. But lying while doing it, hypocrites and egomaniacs, that's who are running far too many states in this country and whose personal personality flaws revealing themselves amidst this pandemic. Leading the way, California Governor Gavin Newsom and New York Governor uh, Andrew Cuomo. I'll expose, but I cannot explain and justify. First, Governor Cuomo yesterday. So this is substantial news. All across the country, our numbers are lower than just about every other state. After losing over 30,000 people, and I, I agree with the, with the governor, we were ambushed, uh, ambushed by a virus from China who ambushed Europe. So we got it coming from Europe and Canada got it coming from China, and we got slammed first. Then we were told if we showed discipline, we would bounce back quickly like Germany and France. And they're now buried in the virus. Their whole country's ground to a halt. So now we're getting hit It what seems to be a second wave, and they closed the schools. And here they are having a press conference. The governor, the mayor is five hours late for it. I want you to hear Andrew Cuomo go at it with a Wall Street Journal reporter who's just trying to get him to admit what everyone knows, that he's closing the schools. Let's listen. What are you talking about? You're now going to override. We did it already. That's the law, an orange zone and a red zone. Follow <laughs> the facts. Well, then you're confused. I'm confused. And then I'll tell you what, Jimmy. Still, parents are still confused as well. The schools no, they're not confused. Tomorrow. You're confused. No, I think but parents read the are law, confused as well. Read the law, and you won't be confused. Schools are open by state law. When will they be open tomorrow? That's the question. I think Jimmy's correct in, in asking that question. I don't think it's obnoxious at all. Well, I don't really care what you think. You, he could never put up with the pace that the president does. That's Andrew Cuomo. How dare you question the king? He's terrible. He's not even telling the truth. And we come back more with Matthew McConaughey. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Welcome back, everyone. No matter a moment, we'll have the last part of the Matthew McConaughey interview we're able to do on Wednesday, and I think you'll enjoy because a lot of the stuff he does is extremely timely. Number one. Number two is I just want to lead into this by defining where I'm at. Santa Monica, California's Third Street Promenade. It's the biggest outdoor mall that I can remember seeing. I lived out there for four years, very familiar with it. So Matthew McConaughey moved out to California from Texas, and one of the first things he did is uh, start auditioning. 
and he got a movie, A Time to Kill, and he finally worked hard and got the lead role. Why? Because Sandra Bullock was the box office smash. They could name this unknown actor in this key spot and give him a chance to establish himself. Uh, Joel Schumacher was the one who, who directed it. So here he is talking about what changed after that movie came out and was a huge hit, and he was great in it. Let's listen. When the movie finally hits and you walk on the third street yeah. promenade two weeks later or one week later, what, what's the difference? Yeah, so the movie hits, and I'm talking about not even a week later, two days later. The Friday before Time to Kill comes out, I'm walking down the promenade, 400 people, 396 mind their own business, four notice me. The next Monday, two days later, I walk down that promenade, the world inverted. 396 people staring at me, four of them not, and one of those people were blind. I'm checking and wondering about my nose, if I got a booger on my nose, my fly open, what the heck's going on? The world had become a mirror. Um, I know that day from that day on, I was like, oh, I meet no strangers ever again because everybody, either they know me or they think they know me and have a certain biography on me. People come up and go, oh, I'm so sorry about Miss Hud. And I'm like, well, first off, what's your name? Second off, how'd you know I had a dog? Third, how'd you know her name was Miss Hud? And fourth, how'd you know she had cancer? You just skipped four things before right. we even said hi, you know, and it was kind of shocking. Um, and, um, I also, for the first time, had every offer, almost every offer in Hollywood came to me to say yes to. Well, remember, two days before that, I would have done anything. But the answer was, no, you can't. So all of a sudden, two days later, Time to Kill comes out, and now the answer is all those things you couldn't do? We're saying, yes, you can. And I was like, wow, awesome. Uh-oh, what do I do? <laughs> and- you know? So... I got out of Dodge. I went off to a monastery for a while to go hear myself think and took a trip to Peru with a backpack and had to get out of there to go find out what really mattered to me while I all of a sudden had this new sort of all this affluence. And that's the one thing that comes to mind. If you go to uh, Los Angeles, a lot of my friends do it and the struggle, I understand the struggle and the frustration. I get it. But what's so hard about success and fame? How do you tell to people that that it's much harder than it seems? Sure, sure, sure. Well, look, too many options can make a tyrant out of any of us. And that's what comes with success, the infinite yeses. And that's where the devil's business comes up. It's in all the infinite, it's all the yeses. And you look up and, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're saying yes to things because you can do them for the first time. But you forget to ask yourself, wait a minute, did I really want to do that? Do I really believe in that? Is that really who I am? Because you're just going, well, what do you mean? Of course, it's the first time I ever had the option of doing it. <laughs> so yes is the answer. Well, all of a sudden you can look up and if you don't look up soon enough, you can find yourself just sort of making revolutions in life, going in circles and you're not really evolving and you're not really enriching the things that you're about and you're kind of over leveraged. You kind of, you've got like, I call it this, you've got like, you know, 20 little campfires lit, but no big flames. And you're like, well, wait a minute. What am I about? I'm, 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 I'm kind of, for instance, in my success, I, I started a production company, a music label. Um, I, you know, I was, a, I was a, uh, an actor, obviously. I had my foundation. I had my family. I had my own health to take care of. Well, I looked up one day, and my production company called me at my house, my production company, where I pay the salaries and I pay the rent. And my hand paused to pick up the phone when I saw the number it was coming from. And I remember looking at my hand going, 
what the hell are you doing pausing to pick up the phone call from your own office? And I realized right then, I said, okay, called my lawyer, shut down the production company, shut down the music company. Because what I noticed is I was making, you know, B minuses in these six things in my life. And I was like, I got to get rid of a couple so I can make A's in fewer. And I need to give more time to what it is I care about, what it is that I want to grow, what it is that really is more of my true self. And I had to eliminate. So, you know, with success, you get the infinite yeses, but you have to, to have some process of elimination in there because you can't say yes yeah. to everything. If you say yes to everything, then it's really about nothing. See, this is why I think people, non-actors, are going to love your book and are liking your book because people can learn. You constantly want to get better. Uh, why am I doing this? How do I make it better? Why am I doing this? Why am I getting better? And you take a lot of trips and put yourself on, on a line in which it's almost unthinkable. But in two other, two other questions. You want to be a dad at eight. Why? And yep. what do you think your dad yeah. would think of his youngest son being so successful? What do you think he'd be like now watching yeah. you? Well, so at eight years old, I knew that's the first thing. That's how I opened the book. The only thing I ever knew I wanted to be was a dad. And it happened at eight years, that, uh, eight years old, and I remember it. My dad was obviously a serves and man was pleased and thank you, man. And um, I understood that I would say those things out of respect and sir and ma'ams, especially respect for elders that had lived longer than me. And out of respect, you say, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. I understood that. But at eight years old, I was shaking two of his friend's hands, looking up, looking them in the eye and saying, nice to meet you, sir. Nice to meet you, sir. It had hit me in my eight year old mind that the common denominator of everybody I had been saying, sir, to the men that my dad was introducing me to over the last I was eight years old, so I'd shaken hands for the last, you know, six years, I guess, or five, whatever. The common denominator between all those men is that they were fathers. They had kids. And in my eight-year-old mind, I said, oh, that's when you made it. <laughs> oh, that's success. That's how you get to be a sir. That's how you get someone to look up to you. You become a father. And... That's when I was like, well, that's what I know I want to be. That's the, and and, I, and I, I've never wavered off of that. It was always in my lineage from that day that I wanted to be a father. And now I fortunately and happily am. I've got children, 12, 10, and 7. What would my dad, you know, my dad moved on five days after I started my very first film, Days Confused. Now, there's serendipity in that and that he was alive for me to start something that became more than a hobby. That became a career. Here I am 28 years later and love what I do. So th I, I take pleasure in that. But I do miss – I dad, dad would have – I would have enjoyed sharing a script with him. Hey, what do you think? Hey, this character. You know, I was thinking about so-and-so, and him going, oh, no, I know somebody. You know, old, uh, Jim Buzon. He, we got a, he was this guy I met. Ba, 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 ba. Hey, you want to take a drive over? Let's take, let, 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 let's take a drive over over to – over to so-and-so about five hours away, we'll, we'll, we'll take a drive over there, get a bucket of chicken on the way, go sit down with them and, and, and stay the night and come home tomorrow. Yeah, let's go. We would have taken some road trips together to go sort of investigate characters and people and places. And that I miss. He would have also been on the front row of being a fan. I think he would have really enjoyed he, – because he, I found out after he passed away – you know, we had, I didn't think we had any art or creative side to our family. He passes away. We go to the attic. I find these sculptures. I find these paintings. I find these drawings. I'm like, who's are these? My mom goes, oh, that's your, that's your dad. He would do that after you go to bed. I go, huh, okay. So he would, I think he would have really enjoyed the storytelling. And he was a 
Well, he was a ham. He was a great storyteller, man. He was. That's where I got a lot of my storytelling skills um, from him. He could spin a yarn. Well, that's uh, pretty amazing. And also, the, when you called him up to say, "I don't want to be a lawyer. I want to go to film school," you didn't. You were ready for the blowback from a working class guy that probably was looking forward to having a lawyer in the family. And he said, "Don't half-ass it. Don't half-ass don't it." Half-ass. And it. that's the theme throughout Boy, your book. Don't go halfway, right? No, you know that's a good one to put in your anyone to put in your pocket. Whatever you got going on in your life, if you're fortunate enough to have something that you want to be good at, that you can be good at, that you maybe hopefully have an innate ability to be good at, and you're willing enough to put the work in to either whether that's educating yourself or or the or the or the, the sweat equity to, that it takes and time and commitment. Boy, if you can, don't half-ass it. Is if you're gonna, you know, don't act like one, be one. You know what I mean? If you got something you want to do, don't half-ass it. Is a good adage to keep in your pocket and perspective. Absolutely. And what kind of father are you, are you Matthew? Uh, look, you know, you, you see, right before you have children, everyone's probably experienced this. Everyone unsolicitedly, everyone gives you a bunch of books, how-to books. <laughs> and I remember, you know, going like. That's a little presumptuous for all these books that people are just giving us without even, you know, asking if we want the damn thing. But some of them were good. Um, but I remember, you know, talking to my mom over the years about and, and talking to different parents who who had good relationships with their children, whose children had gone on once they left the household and gone on to become good citizens and good good humans, you know, um, and it, the rule what I noticed, the one rule was, hey. If you're not sure what to do, just love them. And if you <laughs> love them, you really can't go wrong. And loving them, if you really love them, means saying no. And some, a lot of times means means you got to stay up late and have the hard conversation when it would have been a heck of a lot easier to just say yes and go to bed. Loving them can, means the work's going to be harder uh, in raising them. But fatherhood is a verb. I think we all know that. All fathers out there, parenthood is a verb. And it's the most reverential um, sort of job I think we have on the planet as humans is as parents and boy that's another place we could all just do do better at being parents and try to keep the homes together and try to keep the two parent homes together longer and stick it out not half past that job of being a good parent that's how we make some real good change yeah it's all about caring and hustle we didn't touch on your Gen X we didn't touch on the oil of mink you stole in pizza, but I do not want to abuse this time. <laughs> Two times talking to me can weigh on anybody, and I, I, I hope to get the sequel. And by the way, by you writing this book and promoting this book and going number one, your dad would be proud. You're not half-assing it, Matthew. You're uh, going all the way. Uh, heard. Well, uh, I, I pretty clearly see him uh, making a pot of gumbo, having a Miller Lite, sipping a Miller Lite can, and and waiting for that lemon meringue pie, uh, looking down at, at what I'm doing. So that makes me happy. He is uh, Matthew McConaughey. His book is called Green Lights. It wasn't all green lights, but he points to the times that were and what led up to him and what he did after. You're going to love the experiences and love the story. Matthew, best of luck the rest of the way. Hope to talk to you again. All right. I enjoyed it. Speak go, to you next time. All right. Go get it, Matthew. Matthew McConaughey. So I thought you, I thought you would like the the interview because he's a fascinating guy and he's the least impressed with himself, period. He's got a lot of these sayings in the beginning that he came up with himself, I believe, unless I'm really gullible, uh, that he came up with at the time. He took 30 years of journal uh, of journaling and decided to do it. And what he told me last time on television when I interviewed him 
was he had a co-writer who was going to write with it, and then they pulled him off. The publisher pulled him off to do a pandemic book. So he was a good. He was a really good writer, anyway. So he said, "Let me just do this," and that explains, if you think about it, why he be so proud of the book and so uh, and so diligent about promoting the book. Because if you write every word, you want to make sure people at least have the shot of saying no, but almost everybody's saying yes. When we come back, what's today anniversary of the Gettysburg Address? Let's talk about it, what it means in our country. With the guy who wrote the book about Abe Lincoln. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. Here on this sacred ground, Abraham Lincoln reimagined America itself. Here, a president of the United States spoke of the price of division and the meaning of sacrifice. And he taught us this. A house divided could not stand. That is a great and timeless truth. Today, once again, we are a house divided. But that, my friends, can no longer be. We are facing too many crises. That is a little Joe Biden speech at Gettysburg. He's trying to symbolize what I think we can agree on. The country's pretty divided and dug in. And even if you say, well, the president of the United States lost to Joe Biden, 73 million people thought the president should be president for another four years. And maybe 78 million, we'll try to get a final tally, thought Joe Biden should be president. But he didn't actually earn it. He just wasn't Donald Trump. And what I say by earning it, you can't say he campaigned. You can't say he was strong in the stump. You can't say he had a penetrating message. He spent the whole time denying that he had the message of the left. And he wasn't Donald Trump. Well, does that apply today? And uh, can we learn anything from the anniversary of the Gettysburg speech? Uh, let's find out. Let's speak to John Cribb, the author of the brand new book, Old Abe, which Vice President Pence read among the people who endorsed and said it was the best book on Lincoln he ever read. Uh, and Mark Levin read some of it uh, on his show, on his radio show. Uh, joining us now is John Cribb. John, welcome. Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me. I'm a huge fan. Well, thank you very much. I mean, I'm working on a, a book right now with Lincoln and Frederick Douglass, how their lives overlapped and what they meant to the country. So I'm reading as much Lincoln oh, as possible. Great. Yeah, so great. I, I know you can appreciate it. I mean, you appreciate the more you read about Lincoln, the more you appreciate him. But yeah, you made this a novel, correct? Yes, I did. I made it a novel. I really wanted to try to bring him alive uh, for, for people. So I, I wrote it as a historical novel. And how hard was that? <laughs> well, it, I, you know, I got the idea for the book in 2006, and it's just out now. My wife teases me. She says, you know, John, it only took four years to fight the Civil War. It took you, you know, more than three times the length of the war to write this <laughs> stern book. But it was a part-time job. I mean, I was playing my full-time job. But uh, it, it involved a ton of research, but I loved research, so I, I loved every minute of it. So when you talk about the, the country divided, first, before we talk about today, let's talk about then. People think it was the North and South were divided on slavery, but not because the North walked away from it, because they didn't need it, correct? Yes, that's right. And, you know, there was a, there was a feeling that slavery was eventually going to come to an end, and, and that's the way Lincoln thought going into the war. He was more of an anti-slavery man uh, than a, uh, an abolitionist. But at any rate, yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, th th that was the most divided time 
in our country's history. Now, we may be living in the next most divided time now, sometimes I think, but that was the most divided time. True. And what you had is, too, a president who comes to power and already states are leaving before he gets to Washington, which is essentially an enemy territory. Think about that. Congratulations. You are president of the United States. Good luck trying to get South Carolina back. Uh, And and everything else. Can you imagine this? I mean, you can imagine it. You lived it. But can you put that in perspective for our listeners? Yes, it was. And one more thing that listeners should be aware of is that Lincoln did not get one single vote in the lower south when he ran for president. And I don't mean a single electoral vote. He didn't get a single vote in the whole entire south because they wouldn't put his name on the ballot. You couldn't even vote for him. Uh, so that's how that's how divided it was. Uh, but when he he so when he steps up to the podium at Gettysburg 157 years ago today, uh, that's one of the things he's facing uh, is this, this division and this cataclysmic fight that's, uh, that's erupted over uh, how to, how to, whether the country's going to hang together or not and whether, you know, whether democracy is going to be snuffed out or not. And what's interesting is he does come to compromise, to much to the chagrin of many, uh, like Frederick Douglass, who want him to go and say, here's my inaugural speech and goodbye slavery and you better come back here. Uh, renegade states, he says, hey, listen, come back. We're one. I'm not going to make you give up your slaves. We can talk about this. What deal do I have to make to keep the country together? So that's how desperate he was to preserve the union. That's exactly right. He he told the Southern states in his first inaugural address, he said, I will not disturb my slavery in the states where they exist. His insistence was that it not be allowed to spread out of the Southern slave states into the Western territories. And that really is what triggered the war. But yes, you're right. I mean, the Union, you know, Lincoln loved the Union. He loved this country. He, he was fiercely dedicated uh, to the idea of the Union, and he was fiercely, fiercely dedicated uh, to the founding principles uh, that made this country. And determined to keep it together, and it's not going to be destroyed on his watch. And the founding fathers were actually right. real. I guess the only link, the person who knew Washington and Lincoln was John Quincy Adams, and he was serving in Congress, right? That's right. Uh, and Lincoln and, and John Quincy Adams were actually in Congress together, and uh, John Quincy Adams died uh, while Lincoln was serving in, in Congress. It is one term in Congress. So Lincoln, you know, Lincoln had that connection. He called them, they said they were iron men, uh, those looking back uh, to the founders, which I guess was one, one generation ahead of John Quincy Adams. But he had a, what, what, you know, a very close connection, closer than we do today, to the founding fathers. But can you explain before we get to the Gettysburg Address, first off, why Lincoln was the perfect person? He grew in the role, but his his love of language and his dedication to reading classics allowed him to become this great speaker, storyteller, and writer, don't you feel? Yes, yeah, isn't it wonderful? You know, he grew up on the, on the frontier where, you know, his books were so scarce. He used to say, my best, best friend is a man who could get me a book, and he would literally walk miles through the Indiana woods to lay his hands on a, a book if he could. But he, you know, by the grace of God, he read some great stuff uh, like the Bible, and it's, he, he soaked it up. And he becomes, over the years, he hones his language. If you read his earlier writings, they're not you know, quite, quite as good as they are the later ones with the Gettysburg Address. But over the years, he, he hones them. Uh, he's very careful about honing them and becomes this amazing uh, speaker. And, I, you know, at the Gettysburg Address, I think he gives what is the greatest speech ever given on American soil. And and maybe we should talk about that. So f- just to build up a little bit, in the beginning it wasn't, hey, uh, I'm, I'm the president now. You guys are going to leave. Let me free the slaves and fight you. He didn't think the North was ready to get rid of uh, 
slavery entirely. He knew the country wasn't ready. Much like today, yeah. we want to accelerate. We look at the 60s and say, how could you keep people in separate uh, water fountains and, and different parts of the buses and different schools? They were still a little hazy about, you know, we were, uh, about where we're heading as a country, even though the rest of the world was giving up slavery a few decades ahead of us. And he had to wait by yeah. this time until the country was ready. And in early losses mm-hmm. and a harder struggle with the South and then realizing what he was up against and there would be no tomorrow and this was going to be a bloody affair left him almost no choice. And he picked the perfect time to issue the Emancipation Proclamation. Yes, you're exactly right. He Early on in the war, he realized that if he had tried to make it a war over slavery, a lot of people in the North would have just revolted. I mean there was there were a lot of Southern sympathizers in the North. Uh, there were a lot of people that thought it would that rather than tear the country apart, just this best to leave this thing alone. Uh, there were uh, he he would have lost the border states. And frankly, if he tried to make it a war about slavery at the beginning of the war, he was worried a lot of the Northern Union soldiers would simply walk off the battlefield. They were going to fight to hold the Union together, but they weren't going to fight to free to free black people. Uh, but by the time he issues the Emancipation Proclamation, of course he he uh, issues the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation right after the Battle of Antietam. In September of 1862, after what was a, a Pyrrhic victory there at Antietam, uh, but he uses it as the occasion, and then the, signs the Emancipation Proclamation on January 1st, 1863. He knew that by that time, public mood had shifted in the North, and the time was right to begin to pivot and make it a war not just about saving the Union, but also about uh, freeing the slaves and preserving our founding principles. And we believe, and he believed, that it was a matter of us living up to the Constitution, not changing it. Exactly. Right? It isn't, well, America better evolve. Yeah. No, we have to live up to the documents. It, it's not yes. that the documents have to change with us, although we did exactly. obviously yeah. have amendments. Yes. Yes, and his favorite uh, founding document, of course, was the Declaration of Independence, which is why he starts the Gettysburg Address saying four score and seven years ago. That's 87 years. If you subtract 87 from 1863 when he gave the address, that takes you back to 1776, the year of the Declaration. And when he, when he quotes the nation, when he says a nation conceived in liberty, dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal, that's pretty much straight out of the Declaration. So what he's saying is we, uh, we have to dedicate ourselves uh, to living up to those principles in the Declaration of Independence and our founding, uh, doc, other founding documents. That's our job, and that's what makes us a great country. It what makes us one people, and every generation has to do that. Uh, we're with John Cribb. He wrote uh, Old Abe, and we're talking now, building up to the Gettysburg Address. So the war starts turning to the north, and it's just out of attrition. And then Lincoln makes the gutsy call of allowing African Americans to fight for their freedom, literally take guns and arms and fight uh, yeah. and, and fight against the South. And it, it just becomes clear this is going to be our victory, but it doesn't mean there's not a lot of blood to be spilled yet. What happened at Gettysburg leading up to the president's speech? Well, of course, that was the most cataclysmic uh, battle of the uh, Civil War in early July of 1863, uh, Lee's second invasion of the North, and uh, and Meade manages to turn him back. I, there was a lot of thought that if, if Lee had actually managed to win that battle, that uh, the North basically would have said enough is enough and uh, would have would have let the South go ahead and sue for peace. Uh, but the North does win. And uh, after the, the battle, you know, there was 50,000 casualties, maybe around 8,000 people killed. We're not sure. Uh, but the, the, the armies would 
hastily dig, you know, very shallow graves and, and put the bodies in them. Uh, but then somebody had to come along and do something with them. Later on, there was no federal authority to do that. So it was basically left to the townspeople of, of Gettysburg uh, to figure out what to do with this this horrible, you know, situation on their hands. Uh, so the idea comes up to have a national cemetery. It's really several states, uh, you know, coordinated it. Um, and so they've established this, this uh, ceremony, uh, this, this cemetery. And Lincoln is invited uh, to give a few appropriate remarks uh, at the dedication of this uh, cemetery where about 3,500 of these uh, fallen soldiers are going to be buried. So you say uh, in your book, I did not know this, that Mary Todd Lincoln did not want her husband to go to Gettysburg to give this speech. Yes, that's right. Their youngest son, Tad, uh, came down with a fever uh, right before uh, Lincoln was supposed to go. And, of course, they'd lost two sons uh Earlier on, they lost their son, Eddie, when he was not quite four years old in 1850 when they were living in Springfield of uh, consumption or what we would call tuberculosis. And then uh, their son, Willie, dies in the White House in February of 1862 of uh, typhoid fever. So she's terrified they're going to lose another another son. So when, when Tad comes down with a fever, uh, she really begs Lincoln not to go. But the, a doctor, the attending doctor, Dr. Stone, uh, told Lincoln that it, was, it would be okay for him to go. And he, he thought the occasion was too important to not go. So he goes, and on the way, yeah. is it true he writes the speech? No, I, uh, he may have read a little bit of it, but but, but most authorities uh, agree that I mean he's definitely he, he told uh, one of his aides that he read about half of it before he left for Washington, um, and it was probably not a good time to do it on the on the train. Uh, but when he got to Gettysburg, he stayed in the the house of a, a family, the Wills family. There's a man named David Wills, a local attorney, who's one of the, the drivers of establishing this cemetery. And uh, he finishes writing the Gettysburg Address uh, that night, and then he gets up the next morning, makes a you know a few more changes, and then uh, cops out a, a fresh copy before he gives it. But he'd been thinking about it for a long, long time. Why? Do you, what stood out about it, and was it obvious to everyone there that this was one of the greatest speeches ever written? I think, well, of course, he, he famously was so short that a lot of people really thought he was just beginning to get going when he when he stopped the speech. Off, because the speaker before him, Edward Everett, had spoken for two hours. Um, uh, but the reaction to the speech, even there that day, the crowd, after a momentary, I think, silence, because they weren't sure he was, was, was uh, finished, uh, was thunderous applause. And it pretty, pretty soon it became clear this is a really great speech. Now, the press was uh, every bit as partisan, if not more partisan back then, just uh, today. You know, there were Republican newspapers, Democratic newspapers, and the Democratic newspapers, of course, savaged it. Uh, the Chicago Times said that the, uh, the, t- the cheek of every American should tingle with shame at the silly, flat, dishwatery utterances of the president at Gettysburg. And the London Times attacked it and said it was a bad speech. But other newspapers uh, like the uh, Springfield Republican in Massachusetts said it was a perfect gem of a speech. And people pretty quickly began to weigh in and realize that this was, this was a really great speech. What do you like about it? Well, I love, of course, uh, the language. Uh, first of all, it's just so Lincoln-esque. It's, uh, it's just it's so 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 beautifully written, but I like the the call to each generation in that that speech uh, to take up the the rededication uh, to those those founding principles uh, because it really is something that has to be done by by every by every generation, and I like Lincoln's uh, his his vision that you know this country. Uh, millions and millions around the world were looking to and still do look to this country uh, as the embodiment of government of the people, by the people, and for the people. So the crescendo uh, building 
uh, to that, I think is, is just gorgeous in the speech. And that's uh, all in your book, uh, Old Abe and the Gettysburg Address. Go look it up today. Uh, it really matters. And sadly, it applies a lot about coming together and, and putting yeah. your issues and your disagreements aside and, and moving uh, in a common direction. Um, and I think it's more important now than ever. My last question to you real quick. If John Wilkes Booth doesn't kill Abraham Lincoln, we are a so much better country. I think he's done more yes. damage to the future of the country than anybody else, more than any single yeah. man. Yes, I think that's that's a, that's a, a very good point. I think um, Lincoln, uh, towards the end of the war, he really did have his mind on true uh, reconstruction, and uh, you know he he started out his administration in the first inaugural address by saying, "We are not enemies, but friends. We must not be enemies. Though passions may have strained, it must not break the bonds of affection." And then he ends uh, with this, or he, when when he's giving a second inaugural address. Uh, with the beginning of his second term, you know, he's, he says he wants the country to act with malice toward none and with charity for all. So he, the, all, the whole way through, he was always calling uh, for the union and for unity because he, he knew we were all Americans in the end. He did. There was no celebrating in the second inaugural because he wanted us to all come back together. There right. can't be any losers. Right. Um, thanks exactly. so much. Now I know why uh, the vice president thinks your book is the best Lincoln book ever. It's called Old Abe. Uh, thanks so much. I appreciate you being, uh, being with us. John Cribb, great job. Thank you, Brian. You got it. Uh, back with some calls. Just a moment. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back, everybody. I, I don't want to short, give short Swift any calls, so let's find out if there's indeed more to know. More to know. You guys remember Home Alone 1, right? Remember Home Alone 2? Maybe you didn't watch it, but Donald Trump was in it. So interesting. They said, you can use my building, but you have to put me in the movie. And the director thought, oh, that's ridiculous. I'll put him in, but I'm going to cut him out. What happened, Allison, when they tried to cut him out? So during the screening, they showed the scene. And after Trump came on the screen, everyone cheered. But do you want to hear the quick little, like, five-second interaction? Excuse me. Where's the lobby? Down the hall and to the left. Thanks. And the crowd went wild. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Next, Dolly Parton partly funded Moderna's COVID vaccine. Uh, the country music star tells that their first ever accident, uh, a car accident in October, was minor, but left her bruised and sore enough to seek medical advice at Vanderbilt, where she met uh, the doctor, the physician, professor of surgery, and that doctor working on the, the vaccine. And she wrote a $1 million donation to Vanderbilt for that research. See, so the accident in 2013 then paid off down the road because she was so impressed. She gave them a million bucks. Wow. And then she also has her amusement park. A very quiet success story. She was an actor, singer, personality, variety show. So talented. Right. Reminds me a lot of myself. I've been compared to her a lot. Especially the body. I know. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.